Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast, the first of the new year, first of 2022. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me as always is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. So, first week of the year... Back in the day, Simon, we used to be an old saying that so goes January, so goes the year, as far as the stock market is concerned. And then some people even went further and said, as goes the first week of January, so goes the year. They took it back to just one week. But that's just a bit of an old wives' tale, if you like. But tell us what has been happening in the markets this week and uh, as we enter the new year. Well, I suspect investors in investment trust companies will hope that that particular saying is untrue in regards to this year, at least, because in the first three trading days of 2022, we've seen the investment companies sector struggle a little bit, probably down about best part of 2% or so in those first three days. And that compares with the wider UK market, certainly the FTSE All Share up about 0.7%, though clearly very early days and it's an abbreviated week as well. We've seen the sector average discount move around a little bit, started the year at 1.6%, narrowed into 1% at one stage and now has probably moved out to around 2%. So there's definitely a case of uh, some of the share prices finding their level. But obviously, a lot of news flow about the Omicron virus. Uh, Most people, I suspect, or certainly the market would appear to be kind of looking through the surge in cases, given the milder symptoms. And I think the focus remains on inflation and in particular, labour shortages and supply chain disruptions. So a lot of the chat around the market this week is about what the Federal Reserve might do this year. A lot of talk about the possibility and the likelihood of rising interest rates probably sooner than expected. That would certainly seem to be the message that came through when the latest minutes of the Federal Reserve were poured over. But again, a lot of focus on uh, US hiring rates and again, as evidence of that tight labour market. So a lot of the conversations and discussions that we're having last year, I think, will still be relevant this year. Indeed. And uh, as far as the investor trust discounts are concerned, I mean, they ended the year at about 1%, which is pretty much as tight as they've been on average at the end of most years for quite a long time. It was pretty similar the year before, actually, as I recall, in 2020. But uh, is that now going to become a kind of typical seasonal factor? We're going to see discounts kind of close in towards the end of the year. Any, Any reason to think that might be the case? Yeah, I think that's a pattern that we've seen for a few years, to be perfectly honest. So, I mean, just to put it into context, the average discount for the wider investment company sector last year was probably somewhere in the region of 3, 3.2%. And then that drift in at the year end to tighter discounts. And I think there's various reasons why that might be the case. Clearly, there are lower trading volumes when you come to the the end of the year. December is a quieter month for trading in general. I think a lot of uh, investment companies are minded to see their discounts tighten as they end the calendar year. It's quite helpful, to be perfectly honest, when you're reporting your results to your shareholders, if you can point to a a narrower discount than might have been the case throughout the rest of the year. Um, And as I said, that's a factor that we've seen now for several years. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some of the news that there has been. It's been a pretty quiet week for announcements. Uh, It has to be said. So this is going to be probably one of our shorter podcasts. Some of you maybe think that's that's a good thing, but uh, we like to give it as much... uh, attention as we can. So we're going to go start from the beginning with uh, corporate activity as always. And uh, let's kick off with BlackRock Latin American, ticker BRLA. Can you give us up to date on uh, what's happening with this particular trust, Simon? 
Well, they've announced this week that a 25% tender offer has been triggered by an NAV underperformance over a four-year period to the end of 2021. So um, this investment trust in common with quite a few in the emerging markets and Asian subsectors had a conditional tender mechanism. In the case of BlackRock Latin American, um, it was dependent on performance, NAV performance, and the average discount level. In terms of the average discount level, it passed on that measure. It averaged 11.65%. It had to average more than 12% to trigger the discount. Whereas on the performance side, it underperformed. So probably best part of about 1% on an annualized basis over that four year period. So there will be this tender offer for up to 25%, and that will be at a 2% discount to any of the less related portfolio costs. Now, we're still waiting to find out the timing and the details of that tender, but it will require approval by shareholders at a general meeting, and that's likely to follow the fund's AGM, which at the moment is scheduled for the 19th of May. And I think they've got a biennial continuation vote at that AGM, so I suspect one will be dependent on the other. But it's worth keeping an eye on these conditional tender offers. I think we've talked about a number of these over recent months because they are quite frequent in the Asian and emerging market peer groups. And what you do tend to see, particularly in the case of BlackRock Latin America, is a good example, actually, in that two to three month period at the end of last year, the discount really did narrow in, as I think as the market seemed to uh, suspect that it was in danger and indeed did fail or trigger its uh, conditional tender offer. In terms of 2022, not that many uh, are actually coming up in terms of the performance measurement period. I think the only one is the, the JP Morgan Chinese, the uh, Growth and Income Fund. And actually, certainly the last time I looked at it, they were significantly outperforming on their performance measurement target. But over the next two or three years, there are a number. And as in the case of BlackRock Latin American, um, over the last year, they've averaged a discount somewhere in the region of 9 to 10%. And at the moment, that's narrowed into 4%. So you can see how that re-rating has worked. Okay, so it's fair to say probably that they kind of passed on one measure by a very small margin and failed on the other by a pretty small margin. So how do you think this might go? I mean, the tender offer is in there for the for the reasons as we know that these things are included to make an incentive for the investment trust to meet its uh, objectives. But they're pretty close, these things. So do you think that will actually suggest that a lot of people will be tendering here or not? How would one interpret this, do you think? It's a good question. And there's also consideration probably has to be given to the size of the vehicle going forward. So I think in terms of its assets at the moment, its gross assets are probably about 150, 155 million. So if you look at it on a net asset basis and you assume that that 25% tender is fully subscribed, then at the current level, at least they'll take it down to assets of about 100 million or so, 105 million. So that seems to be a kind of viable size. But if you look at Latin America in general, there's an Aberdeen fund as well, Aberdeen Latin American income. That's with a market cap of about 27 million at the moment. So that's quite small. BlackRock Latin America possibly going down to near 100 million. I think it just shows that this is an area of the marketplace where returns have been quite difficult for a number of years. It's certainly been one of the laggards of the emerging market sector. And if you look at the shareholder base as well, there will be some institutional shareholders on the register who are probably a bit more value orientated, who will probably welcome the chance of liquidity event at a 2% discount. So one would assume that they would be minded to tender their shares. I mean, let's be honest, we're all in favour of regional diversification, but the performance in uh, both these Latin American trusts has been pretty poor, has it not, over the last, uh, well, I'm looking at five and 10 years. Obviously, you'd expect them to be volatile. They're mostly uh, influenced by commodity prices in Latin America. But uh, the performance, looking at the five and 10-year numbers, has been, well, uh, very poor. 
Yeah, it's been a difficult period for that sector. I mean, the Aberdeen Latin American Income Fund, the numbers I've got in front of me is that they're down 14% on an NAV total return basis over five years. BlackRock Latin American, not quite as bad, but still in negative territory, down 7% over that period. So, I mean, one of the things to watch out for with the BlackRock Fund is whether they put in place for the next four years uh, going forward a similar conditional tender mechanism in advance of that continuation vote uh, at their AGM in May. That's something to keep an eye out for. Yes, and just the other point I suppose one could make, to be fair, is that uh, you know if you look at the ten-year numbers, which are also negative according to the AIC when I when I looked at them, uh, in share price return, of course, ten years ago we were in uh, 2012, and that was just followed a period when. Uh, uh, emerging markets had actually done pretty well. So uh, I think it's that uh, they'd actually save one or two investors from uh, things that have gone wrong elsewhere. So uh, it is fair to say they would expect them to be volatile. But uh, it's not a particularly pretty looking scoreboard at the moment, I think it's fair to say. So let's move on and talk about, uh, well, let's go and talk about third point investors, ticker TPOU, which we've had a lot of reason to talk about. There is this uh, scrap going on between uh, the board, the manager, and some activist and now dissident shareholders, I think we can call them that. The last time we spoke, we'd seen the chairman resign, and we said that was a a somewhat unusual and uh, perhaps an unfortunate uh, turn of events. But uh, there's been another development this week, so perhaps you could fill us in on that. Yes, we've got another letter. Uh, a letter has been written by a gentleman called Miles Stold of Global Value Fund. And they're, as you point out, one of the arguably dissident investors. Quite a, a fulsome letter, quite colourful uh, in places. I think probably Miles went to the same letter writing school as Tom Trina of AVI. But basically, they make the point that they believe that the board's rejection of their requisition in August was unlawful. They make the point that the Vote Co. B shares were used to block the wishes of the majority of ordinary shareholders in the vote of Joshua Targoff remaining as a director. And again, they make the observation that if you exclude those B shares and the manager's ordinary shares, 75% were in favour of his removal. So they put the focus very much back on the independent directors, and they believe that those directors should be held accountable for their corporate governance track records Uh, And then, of course, that brings us on to the conversation that they had with Steve Bates, the former chairman who has resigned, as you mentioned. And and they say how those conversations or that conversation in particular was construed as a threat and led to his resignation. And, and, you know, the point was made in the letter that they were sad to see Steve Bates resign. However, I think the comment was that it was perhaps instructive to resign instead of defending the board of third point investors position. They basically sign off by saying they remain willing to engage constructively with the board, but the, the focus is very much on the, the three remaining uh, individuals at the moment. So this one is still running and is going to run a little bit further, I imagine. I mean, saying you're willing to engage constructively with the board, that's what you would say, of course, I think, even though you've uh, launched a broadside or two and a few choice words in the direction of, <laughs> presumably this is all directed at uh, Dan Loeb and his team who manage this uh, particular hedge fund investment trust. So what's the next step, do you think? I mean, is the share price moving? And if so, what does it tell us? Or is the discount moving? Uh, Because the whole idea behind this, of course, was what the dissident shareholders want or the activist shareholders want is for the discount to narrow. And it has narrowed somewhat. But uh, at the moment, it seems to be stuck in a a kind of range. Am I right about that? I think that's a fair comment, actually. I mean, it's on about a 16% discount at the moment. Over the previous 12 months, it's averaged about a 15% discount. So it's not a, a material difference to that. 
it obviously has moved in a range over that period of time, probably been as wide as 21% and as narrow as a 9% discount. But looking at the share price, it would suggest that the market probably sees this as a bit of a Mexican standoff, to be honest. Clearly, the activist shareholders are not happy and they probably have some realistic grievances and they've made the point that the discount is too wide. And I suspect the, the independent directors would say, yeah, they're not happy with the discount level themselves. And they have put measures in place to tackle that, including this exchange mechanism, which again, we have talked about in podcasts previously. But it's difficult to see where things go from here. And perhaps the discount would suggest that this is one that's going to rumble on. There is no obvious way out, I would see at this stage. Not least because as the the letter from Stout Capital makes clear, the voting structure of the investment company means that Third Point and these vote co B shares mean that any kind of aggression from other shareholders can be just voted down. So this has to be through negotiation. And at the moment, it's difficult to see how the two parties can be reconciled. But interesting approach from Stout Capital to kind of put the focus very much on those three directors, particularly given what happened with with Steve Bates. Yes. And I think uh, if I was forced to guess, I would say that eventually there will be some sort of agreement between these two sides. Because in, in the long run, it can't be good for either the uh, the manager or for the shareholders to be stuck in this sort of ongoing struggle. Uh, but it might become all kind of personal and personalities come into play and all those kind of things do figure here. In terms of these activist shareholders, I mean, obviously, the discount has come in a bit. So the value of their investments has improved a little bit. But do we actually know at what kind of level they came in? Or, or in the case of some of them, they've been involved for perhaps quite a longer time. But when they started this campaign... They would have made some money out of what they've done so far. Would that be fair to say? I don't have the level at which they entered. I'm not even sure if that's in the public domain, to be honest. I mean, you could probably see in terms of AVI stake through the accounts of AVI Global, the investment trust, you could probably get a feel for how much money they've made out of the investment to, to date. And you know, it's worth noting that third point investors over the last three years, their share price total return is up uh, 94%. So certainly over the last three years, it's not been uh, too bad an investment at all, um, despite the fact that discount still remains out in, in mid-teens territory. Okay, so well, this is one little saga we can expect to run on a little bit longer, if not a lot longer from here. Uh, and we'll keep track of it because it's interesting. It raises a lot of interesting issues as well. I mean, it's not just that it's quite entertaining for those of us who aren't involved. Uh, there is an element of entertainment, I guess one would have to say, in seeing these two sides battle each other, possibly to a standstill. But uh, Uh, There are some very important issues about uh, governance and so on uh, that are raised here. Uh, And it's an interesting case study, if nothing else. Let's move on then and talk about a little bit of news about fundraising or recent fundraising. And that comes from uh, Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, ticker C-O-R-D, CORD, which is one of two of these digital infrastructure trusts that we've seen come to the market in recent months. Tell us what the story is there. This was another interesting development, actually. You wouldn't expect to see a lot of fundraising in January in general. It's not noted for being a bumper month, and and particularly in the first week of January. That's pretty unusual. But Cordian Digital Infrastructure have come out, and they've made the point that they've now actually fully committed their capital. They've, They've just announced two new acquisitions one of which is a strategic interconnect data center in New York and a multi-asset digital infrastructure platform in Poland, a business called Emitel. So as a result of that, they are now fully committed. So the C shares will convert to ordinary shares. That will happen on the 20th of January. They've actually provided some dividend guidance as well for their financial year 
which begins on the 1st of April this year, and that's increased to four P per share. So that's ahead of uh, the target that they've given previously. But in addition, coming back to the fundraising, they've announced a placing at 106p per share, and that's a 4% premium to their NAV at the end of September last year, essentially to fund the Emitel acquisition. So I think there was a figure of about £200 million talked about. Now, that placing closes on the 25th of January, with the new shares trading on the 27th of January. So we already have our first fundraising attempt of 2022. Can you just talk us through these numbers then? So... What is the current share price of Cordiant and what is the current share price of the C shares? And can we deduce from that what will happen after the C shares are converted into ordinary shares? So in terms of the ordinary share price, that's on about 108p or so at the moment. So I've got on my screen about a 6, 6.5% premium to their NAV. And the share price on the C share at the moment is about 104p. So the way that the conversion will work on the 20th of January will be done on an NAV for NAV basis. So um, they will take the respective NAVs and, and make the uh, adjustment accordingly. So the share price is not necessarily an indication of how that conversion will work. But it is interesting. I mean, as you mentioned, they only came to the market in February last year. They raised £370 million at that stage and then came back with relatively quick order in June and raised £185 million through the C share. So to put the two share classes together, it's going to give it a pretty meaningful size, even before this latest placing, so um, around 600 million or possibly uh, a bit more. But it is a quite a concentrated portfolio. I think my understanding is that there are only going to be three assets. I might have got that wrong, but effectively, these businesses, particularly the two acquisitions, these are operating businesses that they're uh, acquiring. And so, for instance, the Polish digital infrastructure business has broadcasting towers and fibre and so on and so forth. So possibly a little bit different from the infrastructure plays that we've seen to date. They certainly are. I think that's um, one of the reasons why they've attracted such interest. So as far as I understand anyway, that by the time the conversion has been made, then we'll find out what the share price is and then we can look at what the uh, the placing price of 106p is in relation to that and also perhaps whether or not they update the NAV at that point so that investors can take a view on whether it's a, a healthy premium or a significant discount or whatever. Okay, well, we'll find out that when the shares convert. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some results and updates. And we'll kick off with Pantheon International, ticker PIN. This is a private equity trust and one that's announced a series of measures with the aim, it says, of trying to reduce, let's see the discount narrow a little bit. What has been the latest figures from them, Simon? Yeah, so they've announced their NAV as at the end of November last year, and that came in at about a 7% uplift from the end of October. So what tends to happen with these monthly NAVs for some of these private equity funds is that every now and again, you do get a big shift. And that's invariably as the underlying portfolio hits a new valuation point. So in the case of Pantheon, now a big chunk of the portfolio was revalued as at the end of September. So 94% of the reported valuations were as at the 30th of September. Unsurprisingly, given the way that things were going, that saw the uplift in the NAV, and that's what really drove the uplift. And they also benefited from some foreign exchange movements. And that's a pattern that we've seen across the listed private equity space, that as these quarterly underlying valuations have come through, and obviously the latest point is as at the end of September, that we've seen these monthly NAVs rise. And certainly the expectation that when we do get the results as at the end of 2021, 
given what we saw in the final quarter of last year in terms of investment activity and general markets as well, then that should all be a pretty positive backdrop for those year-end NAVs. But it will be a number of months before we get them. And in terms of the discount, I mean, since they announced their intention to try and do something about it, we had an interesting interview with Pantheon uh, in the Moneymakers Circle a few weeks ago, and they talked about uh, what their ambitions were there. Uh, But has it had much impact yet? Obviously, the discount will vary depending on uh, every time the NAV gets uh, updated. Yeah, so in general, we have seen discounts narrow across the private equity sector. In the case of Pantheon International, I've got them on about a 17, 18% discount or so at the moment. That's tighter than the average for the previous 12 months, which has come in at about 21%, uh, though it's a little bit wider than their immediate peers. So we've kind of got them in the, the fund of funds, private equity space. Um, and some of those funds have actually been quite positively re-rated recently. So Standard Life Private Equity, for instance, on an 11% discount. You've got funds such as ICG Enterprise on a 12% discount. Harbourvest, which is possibly a little bit more comparable to Pantheon, that's on a 16% discount. So Pantheon certainly seems a little bit wider. But the thing to remember with these discount levels on, on the private equity funds, again, to my point, that there is a time lag behind getting the updated valuation. So when you look at on the screen or you look whatever information source you use uh, and you see these things on whatever discount, then you've got to bear in mind that that's from some uh, outdated NAV or underlying valuations, certainly. Okay, well, we can take a look at another one, which is Princess Private Equity, ticker PEY, which has also produced an updated NAV. Not quite the same performance here, but uh, tell us more about that one as well. And how does that compare? Yeah, that's right. So again, this was just a monthly NAV as at the end of November. They were up about 0.4% in that particular month. So obviously a quieter month of performance, but a lot of uh, investment activity at the underlying portfolio level. And again, this is again, a common theme we've seen across these private equity funds. They've made uh, a number of sales or or proceeds from distributions during that time, uh, including a, a company called Pacific Bells, which generated a good return for them. I think the other thing to note about Princess, uh, and this again is true for some of the other private equity funds, is that they do pay a a dividend. In fact, I think the yield on Princess private equity at the moment is about 4.8%. So in common with a number of their peers, they were happy to adopt uh, effectively an enhanced dividend policy. So returning uh, some of the realised profits or capital back to shareholders through their dividend. So in this particular announcement, they made the point that declared another uh, interim dividend. And in fact, their total dividend for the financial year 2021 came in at 67 cents, that's in euros. And that was in line with the guidance of distributing 5% of the opening NAV each financial year. Is that one of the reasons why uh, this particular private equity investment trust trades at a narrower discount than Pantheon and uh, the other peers that you mentioned? It's got one of the the more narrow discounts, I suppose it's fair to say, in the sector, but uh, by no means the best on that uh, criteria. Yeah, I've got Princess Private Equity on about an 11% discount at the moment. And as you say, there are some that are on, uh, well, on premium ratings, actually, something like an HD Capital Trust on about a 5% premium to a slightly out of date NAV, as discussed, 3i Group. Uh, on quite a significant premium, but then equally you've got those on on quite wide discounts at the moment, particularly those less mainstream ones. But I suspect Princess Private Equity has had this dividend policy for some time. As I mentioned, other private equity funds also have something similar. So Apex Global Alpha, that has a yield of around about 5% or so at the moment, that's trading on a 13% discount. Standard Life Private Equity is another fund that has an enhanced dividend policy. Their, their yield is a bit lower, probably about 2 2.5% or so at the moment. 
Um, but BMO private equity, another example uh, on with a yield of about 3.8% on a historic basis at present. But for the rest, it's, uh, it's less significant. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on and talk about another sector, which is the property sector. And one of the best performers, almost highly rated performers in this alternative asset property space is supermarket income REIT, ticker SUPR. What have they had to say this week? Well, they've announced two acquisitions in the first week of the year. In aggregate, that represented about £55 million and reflected a 5.3% net initial yield. Uh, So they have acquired a Sainsbury's in Washington, Tyne and Weir. And they've also acquired an Asda store in Cumbran in South Wales. But yeah, it's two more deals for supermarket income breed. I think the thing to note with these particular acquisitions is that in in the case of the Sainsbury's in Washington, Tyne and Weir, that has a 30-year unexpired lease term. With the Welsh Asda store, that's a 10-year unexpired lease term with a five-yearly upwards-only rent review. Now, if that was a kind of an ordinary commercial property acquisition with 10 years to go uh, on the lease, you might just wonder about the value of that. But it's worth noting, and this will be true, I suspect, of supermarkets in general, that Asda have been a long-term occupier of that particular store. They've been there since the 1970s. So I suspect supermarket income rates have probably taken a view on that 10-year lease term. I think the other point to note on these two acquisitions is that they've increased their credit facility with their banks by about £137 million in order to fund these acquisitions. And that increases those facilities up to about £250 million. Uh, They've got about £50 million uncommitted uh, accordion option, so additional firepower effectively. But it's worth keeping an eye on some of these specialist property plays and in fact, some of the renewable energy infrastructure plays as well, when they do make these acquisitions affected on their credit facilities, because invariably, it's a sign that that might be fundraising plans to come in future. This seems to be uh, very much the model that with a number of these investment companies, they make their acquisitions, they they do it by using debt, but then they come back to the marketplace at some stage, not too long thereafter to raise additional capital and effectively use that to repay their debt down. So supermarket income REIT last came to the market back in October last year when they raised 200 million pounds. And what was the price at which they raised money back then? That's so mean. That's very mean. So they raised that two hundred million pounds at a price of one hundred and fifteen p, and that was an oversubscribed issue. And they have done very well. They've been very successful, despite the fact that they're trading at a premium. I think one of the biggest premiums of all the specialist property trusts. They're still offering a significant yield. So, do you think if they do come back to the market, as as things stand, it looks like that could well be well received? Well, you're right in terms of the premium. They're they're on about a 29% premium on my screen at the moment. And so that's certainly very helpful if you do have plans to raise additional capital. In terms of the yield, I've got them in about 4.8% yield. So that's certainly, one would assume, looking across their peer group at quite an attractive level. So you're right, they have been successful in terms of deploying their capital in the past. And as long as they're confident that they can deploy that capital and not dilute down existing returns, then it's certainly an option I suspect they will consider. And given that those who subscribed last time are in the money already and have that dividend as well, as things stand, that looks a very attractive potential proposition. Let's move on and talk about Triple Point Social Housing REIT, ticker SOHO another specialist property investment trust, uh, and they've had some news as well this week. Yes, again, it's another acquisition. So this is four properties and and contracts exchanged on another property. 
and that comprises 45 individual units. So the aggregate consideration is about nine, nine and a half million pounds, and those net initial yields are in line with existing portfolio. So the properties are located really all over the country, all over the UK, and the new leases are from a minimum of 20 years with specialist regulated housing providers, and, and there's a whole range of those housing providers, and they did disclose those. But the rents are subject to annual upward-only rent views, and they will increase in line with CPI, so you kind of get that inflation protection as well. And unsurprisingly, the properties comprise specialist, high-quality homes for individuals with learning disabilities and other support and care needs. But we talked a lot about this asset class of social housing last year, mainly in the context of, of Civitas, but we did also talk about Triple Point on a number of occasions. Uh, but again, they're still prepared to make uh, acquisitions and are looking to build out their portfolio. And so do we have any clue as to whether these particular regulated housing providers, are they going to be uh, at risk of the same kind of potentially negative rulings by the Housing Association regulator? So I don't have any insight into that, but I know that the regulator is looking at the whole marketplace and is going through systematically reviewing all the different housing associations involved. Whether the regulator has opined on any of the housing providers involved in this particular acquisition, I don't know off the top of my head. But I mean, would it be a surprise to see further announcements from the regulator as we go through 2022 in general? No, I don't think it would be just in, in regard to the whole marketplace. So just in terms of that, in terms of the ratings of the two that have been most adversely affected, that's uh, Civitas Social Housing and Triple Point Social Housing REIT. Has there been much movement uh, since we last discussed these in terms of discounts and so on? So I've got Civitas Social Housing on about a 9% discount and Triple Point Social Housing on about a 7% discount. So again, to put some context around that, on average over the last 12 months, Civitas has had about a 1% discount, but has been as wide as 18 and Triple Point has averaged a 2% discount, but its rating has been out as wide as a 12% discount. So they appear to be making the long march back to normality, but still got some way to go. And as a result of that, of course, their yields have gone up because of the discount. So they're still offering, I think, somewhere north of 5% uh, in terms of potential yield. So that certainly underpins the share price to some extent, I would say notwithstanding these issues that have been raised. Okay, let's move on and talk about Foresight Solar Fund. We're back into the renewable energy sector here. What have they had to say this week? Yes, it was another set of acquisitions. So Foresight Solar announced that they'd uh, acquired stakes in solar farms in Queensland, Australia. And in fact, this is an investment that they'd already had. They already had a 49% stake in these particular solar farms. They've increased that to uh, 100%. That incremental investment was equivalent to around about 1% of NAV. So uh, both the assets in question are fully operational and they do have some senior debt facilities which will expire in April this year, but they're expected to be refinanced in the first quarter of the year. But I thought it was worth just flagging up this as an example of the kind of deals that we do see in the renewable energy infrastructure space. It's not uncommon to have a minority stake in, in projects or, or deals like this and then increase that up. So in this particular instance, they had a 49% stake, they increased it to 100%. And why would that work for Foresight Solar Fund? Well, one would assume there's less due diligence involved in increasing a stake of an existing investment. Um, and potentially, at least in general, you should avoid a, a competitive process. So where you do have capital deployed, um, that would seem to be quite an attractive option. 
Okay, well, we can move on and to some extent contrast and compare the next energy solar fund, ticker NESF, which has also uh, made a, a further announcement about its uh, investments. That's right. So this was a, a co-investment of 10.6 million euros, and that was in a solar plant in uh, Cadiz in Spain, again, funded from its uh, credit facility. But some interesting commentary around this. So this is the first co-investment alongside Next Power 3 ESG. So effectively, this is a, a private markets fund also uh, run by the same team as Next Energy Solar Fund. So they've made a $50 million commitment in June last year to this. And the idea would be that through this particular vehicle, they'd get a broader exposure to a range of assets uh, and OECD countries, uh, as well as some development assets as well. So this is the first uh, investment they've made. And I think that 10.6 million euros represents a 25% stake in this particular solar plant. Well, we're on these two solar funds. Obviously, within the renewable energy infrastructure space, there are a number of different subsectors, if you like. Uh, in terms of the solar funds, or the ones that are primarily invested in solar, uh, there are some others which do invest in solar as well. I mean, there's quite a wide range of ratings for these, looking at the uh, AIC data at least. And they're all kind of uh, offering quite decent yields, but uh, they are quite a difference in, in rating. So uh, perhaps you could just describe the numbers for on this, uh, Simon, because I think it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, so in terms of solar pure plays or focused funds, that's probably a better way of describing them. Um, I think there are kind of four solar funds. In no particular order, there's the US solar fund, which, as the name would suggest, is very much focused on the US market. That's on a small discount on my screen at the moment, about a half a percent discount or so. And that's, I think, the smallest of the four in question. Um, and then you've got others that are more kind of more mainstream or something more UK focused. So Bluefield Solar Income Fund on about an 8-9% premium rating. That's got a yield of 6.4%. Foresight Solar that we just discussed, that's probably trading around NAV or so at the moment with a 6.8% yield on a historic basis. And then Next Energy Solar, probably on about 2-3% premium rating at the moment with a 7% yield. So as you say, certainly those more mainstream funds have got yields between about 6 and 7% and are either trading around NAV or on um, single-digit premiums. Right. I think it's fair to say they have derated a little bit over the course of the last year or so, and they do look quite attractive. So you wonder why, uh, for example, that uh, you know these solar funds, which, as you say, are all trading around NAV, they're offering 6-7% yields. That looks um, pretty reasonable, does it not? Or is it perhaps that uh, just some of the other renewable energy funds look more attractive in terms of uh, NAV potential? I think there's certainly been a case of these solar funds looking at opportunities to deploy their capital. And I think we've talked before about how just not just on the solar funds, but some other renewable energy infrastructure funds have looked to broaden their mandates in the last year or two in order to provide greater opportunity to deploy capital. So I suspect that's one factor. I think the other thing as well, if you look at the returns from those solar funds over three-year basis, if you just compare the numbers out, the returns uh, for those funds that do have a three-year track record is probably worth noting. Bluefield Solar Income Fund has generated an NAV total return over three years, about 27%, um, but the rest are lower than that. So Foresight's about 15%, Next Energy Solar probably about 14%. So that would compare with, say, Greencoat UK Wind, for instance, that's up about 25% in NAV total return times over three years. 
um, and Trig, the renewables infrastructure group, uh, again, up 25%. So that would seem to be the kind of benchmark for that particular subsector. Yeah. So in relative terms, their NAV performance has been relatively disappointing compared to uh, some of the others. Let's talk then about Octopus Renewables Infrastructure Trust. ORIT, O-R-I-T, is the ticker, uh, which is certainly not trading on a discount. What have they had to say this week? So they've effectively exercised a call option, so basically an option to buy for the acquisition of two onshore wind farms in Finland. And these will cost in the range of about 140 million euros. Uh, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the names of these wind farms, but they're in the final stages of commissioning. They've also invested £2.5 million and up to a further £7.5 million in the development funding for joint ventures uh, with a specialist UK onshore wind developer. And the idea is they're targeting development over the next five to ten years of up to nine onshore wind farms in Scotland and Wales. But just going back to the acquisitions in Finland, um, again, I think this is an interesting development. I think it's very much the case with some of these renewable energy infrastructure plays that they have to look for opportunities where um, they're quite a supportive backdrop. So in the case of Finland, my understanding is that this is a marketplace that has long-term power price agreement contracts with corporates, so allows fixed prices more easily than is the case in, in a number of European countries. So that's kind of why it works. Uh, and that's why one suspects they're kind of seeking the opportunity there. But again, another example of a renewable energy infrastructure fund getting their capital to work. And so for this particular one, if you're interested in this one, ORIT, that will be trading at a premium, I'm sure. Uh, and what does the yield on that one compare? We talked about the solar funds, but the yield on this one, obviously it's a newer one than some of the others. Uh, Foresight's been going for several years now. What kind of rating are they on and what kind of yield would you get on ORIT? So Octopus Renewables Infrastructure ORIT is trading on a premium. I've got it around about 9% premium or so at the moment. And it's yield on a historic basis about 4, 4.4% at present. Okay, so there aren't that many announcements this week, as we said. So we're coming to our last one, which is, uh, as it happens, in the music royalties sector. It is Roundhill Music Royalty, ticker RHM, and they have made another acquisition. So the news keeps flowing in this sector, yeah. They have been busy. They've had a very busy start to the year. They've basically announced this week that they've acquired a significant share of the master artist royalties and they've entered into a long-term agreement to administer the neighbouring rights income of the catalogue of Nancy Wilson, who, as I'm sure you know, Jonathan, is the singer, songwriter and guitarist of the rock and roll band Heart. The band apparently has sold over 35 million records globally. Um, some of their hits include These Dreams, Alone, Crazy On You, Barracuda and Magic Man. But it's also worth noting the fund will make further financial disclosures on completion of the investment of proceeds from the C-share fundraise and the remaining undrawn credit balance. Well, I don't know much about her, to be honest. I have familiar vaguely with Hart, but uh, I can tell you that uh, Nancy Wilson is almost exactly the same age as me. But uh, I have Googled her and uh, I have to say she looks in pretty good condition, probably even better than I am. So uh, <laughs> give her credit for that uh, interesting development there. And uh, the, just quickly then, the Round Hill Music Royalty, uh, how's that one trading and how is it comparing to uh, our friends at Song who keep us entertained all the time? So Round Hill Music Royalty, I've got the ordinary share class on about $1.06 at the moment. That's on a very small discount, probably about 0.7% to the latest NAV. And just as you mentioned them, Hypnosis Songs Fund, probably not dissimilar rating, actually, probably about 1% to 1.5% discount at present. 
Okay, so that brings us to the end of this particular edition of the podcast. We are going to be shorter than uh, some other weeks, as I've said. I should just mention, for those of you who are interested in the Moneymakers Circle, our subscription service, we have a profile this week of Finsbury Growth and Income, which is uh, Nick Drain's managed investment trust, operates in the UK equity income sector, as well as lots of other material. We've got some very interesting... Uh, Interviews coming up over the next few weeks have been scheduled. We will be hearing from uh, the likes of Peter Hewitt and uh, Nick Greenwood over the next uh, two, three weeks, as well as from Simon Barnard, who is the manager of the Smithson Investment Trust. So if you're interested in those trusts, you might, uh, I hope, find that of interest. And in the meantime, we'll be tracking whether or not, as the first week of January goes, so goes the market. But as you said at the beginning, Simon, let's hope that that is indeed an old wives' tale and not something that is going to be a pointer to where we end up this year. So thank you for your time. We look forward to speaking again next week and uh, no doubt the pace of announcements will be picking up as we head further into the new year. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.